case S01, E05, Messages in Music. There is a general agreement that history's greatest creator of art, music, literature is anonymous. That is with a capital A. However, I would like to add that its most alluring, for me at least, is Enigma. A message is already strangely more powerful when it transcends its creator's name, but sometimes those messages can be dangerous or controversial. And sometimes people want the creation, but they do not want the creator attached to it. They want to remove the creator, to delete them. Conscious of being erased, potentially in several different ways, artists have come up with a surprising range of ways of hiding their names and their messages inside their creations for the discerning to find. Are you a big reader of fiction? If so, you've almost certainly come across a novel in which the author has, for instance, written themselves into the plot as a character or hidden messages in the very fabric of their stories, whether in the form of metaphors or allegories or actual codes. Artists have painted themselves into their pictures. They've used combinations of icons or poses or colours or objects that carry extra meanings and therefore convey deeper messages. For that matter, you might want to Google the Knights versus Snails mystery and you can join the ranks of people who are equally baffled by this bizarre historic phenomenon. More evidence in case you needed it of why this podcast is so good. Back to the point though. Secret messaging is all very well when dealing with images and words, but what do you do if you are a musician dealing with instruments? How can you hide your name or your messages in sounds? I'm not talking here about diss tracks where famous artists make unpleasant passive-aggressive allusions to other famous artists whilst never quite using their names, thereby avoiding the inevitable lawsuits. I'm talking here about actually hiding messages away that is encoding them into the music itself in some way. Messages hidden in music sounds like a terribly modern method of being mysterious, but in fact it's been around for quite some time, and in this episode we'll look at three quite different cases of musical secret messages from past to near present. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. For our first foray into musical messages, let's start in the 1600s with one of the most famous composers pretty much ever. Johann Sebastian Bach. Born in 1685 in Germany, Bach turned out music that was incredible both in its quantity and its quality. Having butchered enough of his beautiful pieces when learning the violin in childhood, I'm not even going to attempt a musical critique, but I will instead focus on his rather charming habit of getting his name into his music. He did this via what is now commonly called the Bach motif, one of the oldest and most famous musical cryptograms. Bach used the letters of the notes, so for the uninitiated who maybe like music but never learned it and never played an instrument, in very simple terms there are seven notes in an octave, A, B, C, D, E, F and G. 
The next octave up starts at A and ends at G again, and so on through all the different musical notes. So to spell out his name, Bach used the musical notes B flat, A, C, B natural. Okay, yes, that's not exactly Bach, it's more like Bach. But he was German, and in German musical nomenclature, B natural, the last one, is named H. Thus you get B flat, A, C, H. What's more, this combination of notes also happens to create something called a cruciform melody. That is, in a slightly convoluted way, it musically draws a cross. You can imagine, though, how well this was picked up and used not only by Bach himself, but by countless others in celebration of him and his work. So, how does this sound? Naturally, when someone finds a clever way of literally writing their name into the very tapestry of their music, as you can imagine, others are quick to follow, and it has proven enduringly popular. In the 20th century, Dmitry Shostakovich created the DSCH motif for himself. So this uses the D from Dmitry and the first three letters, the SCH, from the German spelling of his surname. So it's written D, E flat. Okay, I know again that's a bit weird, but the flat sound is kind of represented by a little S sometimes. C, B natural. Or again in German musical notation, D, E with little flat S sound, C, H. And it sounds like this. And of course, others had a bash at this too. It sort of became like the fashion to turn your name into music. So here is the Sasha hexachord of the eponymous composer Paul Sasha. And here is Arnold Schoenberg's signature hexachord. Hmm. Not all motifs were created equal, I guess. Anyway, as you can imagine, if your name isn't spelled by the first seven letters of the alphabet, or if you're not willing to make a series of substitutions and omissions, it can actually get a bit awkward to encode words into music in this way. Fear not, though. The French had a solution. In the 19th century, a method was created that allowed the inclusion of many more letters, and theoretically anything at all that you like, as long as everybody agrees on it. So imagine a table with seven columns. Each column is headed by a letter, so you have a column A, and then a column B, and then a column C, and so on, through to column G. In the next line down, we carry on with the alphabet, so in column A, on a new row, we start again with H, and then in column B, we add I, and in column C, we add J, and so on, going round through the alphabet in chunks of seven until we're finished. So if you're doing this right, Z should be in the E column. In this way, musical note A represents the letter A, obviously, and also the letters H, or O, or V. Musical note B represents B, or I, or P, or W, and so on. So if you were to play the word band, B-A-N-D, as music, you would use the musical notes B-A-G-D, that is because G is also standing in for N. 
Now, it's an intriguing idea, but it entails something known as many-to-one correspondence. So that means that up to four letters are all being represented by one note. And that makes the decryption of messages encoded in this way extremely challenging. So let's take band again, which we would play B-A-G-D. Those same notes can also be decoded to produce the words bond, as in James Bond, pond, as in where fish live, wand, Harry Potter, pour, a cup of tea, wonk, and some other words, but we'll just leave that right there. So it's fun, but it's not very practical. Not to mention, music made out of secret messages will probably tend not to be all that tuneful. Disguising your top secret message in a jarring, irregular, inexplicable sound mash would more likely draw attention than deflect it, historically the exact opposite of what you want a disguise to actually do. Let's set aside the mystery of classical motifs in religious fugues and 19th century French musical cryptograms. We turn now to the 20th and 21st century and its sudden taste for grunge, rock and death metal. So our second example takes us to the modern era of mass music production. There are a lot of M's going on in this episode today, I can only apologise. Anyway, probably the most common method for secret musical messages is a technique known as backmasking. This is where the message is revealed by playing the track backwards, kind of self-explanatory somewhat, and probably one of the most famous examples of backmasking is the congratulations message in Pink Floyd's 1979 song, Empty Spaces. Not sure what I mean? Okay, here's the relevant bit of the music played forward. And here it is played backwards, but you are going to have to listen carefully. It's not all that easy to hear. Okay, in case you didn't get it, the best guesses are that it says... Hello, Looker. Congratulations. You've just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to Old Pink, care of the funny farm, Chalfont. Then there's a voice in the background that says, Roger, Caroline is on the phone. And then someone else says, OK. Cryptic. Some have suggested that this is a reference to Pink Floyd lead singer Sid Barrett's breakdown, and others have suggested that it's about the character Pink from the Pink Floyd album The Wall, and that this sort of indicates his increasing insanity. Quite what the truth of the matter is, I'm just going to leave to you to determine. As it happens, loads of well-known artists have dabbled in the black arts of backmasking. Some of the more predictable ones are Korn, Eminem, Marilyn Manson, Def Leppard, Cradle of Filth and Linkin Park. Indeed, the ones of a rocky, grungy, satanic, angry oeuvre seem to be especially drawn to this secretive method of sneaking in extra bonuses for dedicated listeners. But some of the more surprising backmasking artists include Eurythmics, Nelly Furtado, and a personal favourite of mine, Imagine Dragons. Perhaps the example, though, came in the form of the Beatles. Of course, it was always going to be the Beatles. 
They were one of the first, if not the first, to do this when they hid a message in the fade-out of 1966 song Rain. And then they did it again in 1977 with Free as a Bird. Perhaps driven by their frankly insane worldwide popularity, the Beatles found themselves at the epicentre of a raging conspiracy theory that dogged them from the 1970s onwards. I mean, I should be clear, it was probably one of several thousand conspiracy theories about them, ranging from Masonic mysteries to Illuminati mind control to the secret of Bay 5B and more besides. Their mind-blowing global popularity generated at least as much smoke as it did fire, but since conspiracy theoriana is a little outside of Enclair's remit, we'll just stick to the backmasking story. Some listeners became convinced that playing some of the Beatles' tracks backwards revealed various versions of the message, Paul is dead. Paul being Paul McCartney, of course. For younger listeners, he was one of the Beatles, and this would be a bit like One Direction's music revealing a Harry is dead message if played backwards or through a fax machine or whatever. So for a start, to the best of my knowledge, Paul was, and at the time of recording, still is very much alive. Even if he were suddenly dead at the height of the Beatles' fame, quite why the band would choose this method of broadcasting such a fact is an even bigger mystery. However, conspiracy theories are what they are, and they are not usually overburdened by scrupulous external logical consistency. Now, this isn't to say that people weren't hearing something, but in reality, they were probably falling foul of the last enemy of human cognition, known as pareidolia. Pareidolia is our incorrigible capacity to find meaning in the meaningless, or signal in what is actually quite literally just noise. So we see faces in wood grain. We hear our baby crying whilst we're having a shower and then we go check and they're absolutely fine and fast asleep again. We see ghosts in the machine. Or in other words, in this case, we hear words in what is actually just the random garbled sounds of a Beatles track being played backwards. Naturally, Hollywood got hold of the idea and since it is an epicentre of rational, restrained thinking, backmasking promptly appeared as a plot device in the cult satanic horror film the Exorcist. In this case, hideous screams and wails from the victim, played backwards, reveals this evil demonic message. For the curious, there are plenty of YouTube clips of this, but if you're in the office, maybe turn your sound down, or better still, use headphones. As you can imagine though, when something like backmasking features in a worldwide blockbuster about the infernal serpent and demonic possession, you can already predict how it's all going to turn out. Sure enough, the public discourse on hidden messages, no doubt fuelled by the fact that those messages were often secreted away in angry, loud young people's music, led to a veritable moral panic. Certain sections of society developed an absolute conviction that these messages could function like subliminal persuasion. In this twilight of the gods, innocent, impressionable young hearers would be turned to Satan, murder and worse. Indeed, In 1988, during his trial, serial killer Richard Ramirez claimed that ACDC's song Night Prowler from the Highway to Hell album inspired him to carry out most of his 13 murders, five attempted murders, and a host of other brutal crimes. In a somewhat dry rebuttal, ACDC's guitarist Angus Young replied that It was the moral majority's idea to play the record backwards, but you didn't need to play it backwards because we never hid it. We'd call an album Highway to Hell. There it was, right in front of them. 
As late as 1990, Judas Priest, a British heavy metal band, found themselves facing a lawsuit from the families of two Nevada men who had killed themselves in a suicide pact. The families argued that the album Stained Class contained hidden messages like Do It that were revealed when certain tracks were played backwards. The presiding judge dismissed the case for lack of evidence. Judas Priest themselves added that inserting messages that made fans kill themselves was, at best, counterproductive, and that if they were going to add subliminal persuasion, it would involve commands like, buy more of our records. Thankfully, the panic over these messages eventually settled down, particularly as psychologists conducted experiment after experiment that repeatedly demonstrated how terrible we are at recognising even the existence of a backmasked message to begin with, never mind the contents of that message. Now, not all messages in music are hidden in quite the same way. For our dramatic finale, our third and final act, we stay in the 1980s and 1990s, but now we turn our attention to television, and in particular, that staple of British primetime after-dinner viewing, the police detective drama. Inspector Morse was a crime drama created by novelist Colin Dexter, and you'll be amazed to know that it starred the eponymous Inspector Morse. The show ran from 1987 to 1993, producing 33 episodes in total, generally set in and around Oxford in England. Episodes were two hours long, so they were pretty in-depth, they were almost film-length affairs, and each one covered its own story arc from start to finish, as well as there being like a super arc that went over the whole series. And amusingly, Dexter, the author, made little cameo appearances in nearly every single one. In fact, Inspector Morse is one of the enduring memories of my childhood. I remember sitting on the floor after dinner, hugging my knees, gripped from the opening credits to the last scene. If you have never watched it, even though I know I am unreasonably biased in its favour and am doubtless overlooking all kinds of flaws, I cannot commend it to you enough. What made Morse really special, both in my childhood and still today, was the music. The theme was composed by Barrington Fulong, and it's not just that hearing it gives me that feeling like it's time to fall headfirst into dramatic escapism again. It's more than that. I'm going to play the first few seconds of the opening, and you will, I hope, very quickly spot the relevant bit. Okay, I'll be amazed if you didn't get it, but just in case, the music opens out with, shocker, Morse code. It plays and it gradually fades into the theme music, and in many cases, as in this particular example, the motif here is spelling out M-O-R-S-E, and this motif is picked up and played throughout. So here's another example where the violins take up the code in the background. However, sometimes Fulong wrote the music differently, so he obviously composed incidental music that would play in the background during the episode, or of course the various music that played at the start and the finish. And sometimes the violins are playing different messages. So sometimes the Morse is telling you the name of the killer, 
But you can imagine, if you are fluent in Morse and you're watching it and it always tells you the name of the killer, it rather spoils the effect. So other times, it spells out the name of another character who's perfectly innocent, deliberately, as a red herring. I mean, come on, tell me that's not the best, nerdiest thing you have ever heard. So, to finish off this episode, pay attention in future, because the next piece of music you hear might just have a secret message encoded into it. This episode of On Claire was entirely researched, narrated and produced by me, Dr Claire Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac uk forward slash onclaire and you can follow the podcast on twitter at underscore onclaire or if you like you can follow me on twitter at dr claire h for the record there is absolutely no backmasking in this episode